Hello, everybody. Welcome to Artist Corner. Today, I'm joined by Graham Nesbitt. You've probably seen his work in multiple places. He's composed for games like Garden Story, Floppy Nights, Goodbye Doggy, and yeah, he's he's a really hardworking musician, composer, and yeah, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Is there anything else you'd like to add, by the way? No, I, that was a pretty good introduction. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, I'll get right into the questions. What was your process like making The Secret of Moonlight Shore? Oh, yeah. Um, so I made that album around the time that I first discovered um, sound fonts, um, specifically like Super Nintendo sound fonts and stuff. Um, and I guess for those who don't know what those are, they're like uh, basically like files that you can plug into like a sampler and um, it loads various instruments that uh, are ripped from different things. People use sound fonts for all kinds of things, but the ones I was using specifically were like for like Super Nintendo and stuff like that. So I was messing around with uh, a lot of the sounds from those like early 90s consoles and stuff. Um, and I was really interested in making uh, like kind of my own uh video game soundtrack sounding album because at that point I hadn't really done any like official soundtracks. I was mostly mm. working on game jams and smaller projects and stuff. I think I did one kind of official soundtrack, but it was really small. It was only like five tracks or something like that. Um, and so I was like, okay, let me imagine kind of like what it would sound like if I made a soundtrack with these retro game sounds um and yeah basically the process was just kind of um playing around with those sounds and kind of getting a vibe based off the different sounds that i liked um there's a lot of like yoshi's island sound fonts and uh like even some animal crossing sound fonts uh and like Donkey Kong Country and just picking out ones that like really stuck out to me as like something I liked, but also something I felt that I could do something new with. Um, and so, yeah, eventually I had enough songs that I made with those to kind of compile uh, on an album and I, and I put it out there and yeah, I think it turned out exactly kind of how I wanted it to. So <laughs> <laughs> I know that Musical Artifacts is a website that a lot of people go to for sound fonts. I was wondering if there are any other kind of resources that you use to find sound fonts. Um, at the time I was making that album, I was using this website called williamcage.com. Mm. And William Cage is like another composer that does a lot of sound font-based uh, music in that like Super Nintendo style primarily. And his website has, uh, I don't know if it's still active, but at the time um, it had like a huge archive of of uh, those older sound fonts. And so that's what I was using uh, primarily for those. Are there any kind of techniques that you use to make sound fonts sound more realistic? Um, realistic in kind of what sense? I guess sometimes if you use sound fonts, you can tell that it's coming from a DAW when you listen to it. Mm. So I I guess it would be realistic in the sense that if you're listening to a song using sound fonts that's more upbeat or dance-inspired, that you can dance to it. And if it's more melodic or ambient, that you actually feel that. In a way, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if my goal was necessarily getting them to sound, um, realistic. More as it was trying to make it sound more polished in in the sense that I wanted to achieve the sound. So, like, for me, that sort of involved messing with a lot of the like 
envelope settings in the sampler I was using in Logic, which is my primary primary DAW that I use. Um, and just like messing with like the attack and decay and all of that to kind of get the sounds a little more rounded out. Um, and of course, like, um, you know, with modern DAWs, uh, you have a lot more liberty in affecting the sounds that composers back then didn't. And so I would use a lot of like effects like delay and stuff just in logic itself to kind of like enhance the sounds a little bit instead of just running them dry um and so i think i think that kind of gave it a slightly different texture than um you know if i were to have used like a uh like a tracker or something for 16-bit sounds or whatever so yeah speaking of 16-bit sounds by the way have you ever used pico 8 Yeah, I have. Um, I actually made uh, an entire EP uh, using the Pico 8 tracker. Um, it, it, it was really fun. Um, yeah, there was a while where I was making a lot of Pico 8 tracker music It's... just because it's like, I think it's a really accessible tracker for people that are new to... composing in a tracker because it does have like kind of a piano roll type feature in it where you can like move the notes around uh manually um but it, it's a great integration between uh punching in different values into the tracker and then editing them like it has a very nice visual representation of where your notes are um so yeah uh, i i love pico 8 um it's great Me too. Yeah, I, I actually, I haven't talked about this before, but I joined a game jam a while back and I was using Pico 8 for the game jam. Sadly, the game, we never continued working on it, but it was so fun to learn how to use Pico 8 and yeah, it's a great tool to use. Yeah, for sure. And it's been around for for quite a while at this point too. So there's a lot of like support for it and a lot of tutorials online at this point. So Yeah. yeah. Also, the art for The Secret of Moonlight Shore, who is made by Adam Meredith, is really pretty. I was wondering, Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. when you started, did you have an idea for how the art would look, or did that come later? Um, I think that came much later on. Um, I think it was near the end of the period of which I was kind of compiling everything together. And uh, he was someone that I knew at the time, um, and I commissioned him to do an album cover for me. But a lot of it was based off of Um, at the, during that time when I was making that album, I was using Pinterest boards really heavily for like mood board and inspiration. And I think the art that was made for that album was uh, heavily referenced a lot of that stuff that I was putting on my mood board. So a lot of it was like just really colorful, like Nintendo key art and stuff like that, um, because I wanted it to kind of reflect that mood in the music. Yeah, So... Pinterest is actually pretty great for that kind of thing. It's it's social media, but without all the bad stuff, you know? You get a ton of inspiration from it if you know where to look. Yeah. Yeah, no, I still I still use Pinterest quite a lot for many different things. Um it's great just for collecting ideas for inspiration on pretty much anything. And it took me a while to kind of like jump on the Pinterest bandwagon. Cause even back in 2017, when the Secret of Moonlight Shore came out, like even that was still pretty late to the Pinterest game. Um, but yeah, uh, use Pinterest. It's, it's good. How long was the process when you <laughs> composed for Garden Story? um, like from beginning, like from the start of when I jumped onto the project till release, like the entire process. Yeah, Um, if you don't mind. oh yeah. Uh, no. So I'm trying to remember. I I think it was it was like 2017 going into 2018 um i met picogram the developer for garden story online um 
we were just like mutual fans of each other's work. Um, and we started communicating just over Twitter. Um, and uh, it was actually Secret of Moonlight Shore. That was the album that they heard. And they were like, it would be really cool if you can make this kind of music for some projects that I'm working on. Uh, and so I, I kind of have that album to sort of thank for, you know, putting sort of feelers out there to give other people to latch onto and getting a sense of like the style of music I wanted to write. Um, but yeah, we, we started working together on just a couple hobby projects early 2018. And then eventually it slowly morphed into garden story um, kind of by summer of that year. Um, and uh, originally I just did like a very small kind of handful of of tracks for the game and and i was we had no anticipation at the time of like really where the project was going it was kind of mm. more of a low-key thing um and then when the publisher um Rose city games got involved um then it kind of turned into a full-blown <laughs> indie game project and so from from 2018 until uh 20 21 i think is when the game came out 20 yeah i'm pretty sure it's 2021 is when garden star came out late 2021 so it was like you know almost three it was like three years of working on that game um and i was doing some other things uh alongside creating the music for that game um but uh yeah it was kind of like <laughs> slow kind of steady hobby work for a little while and it just kind of went into full gear once a publisher got involved and uh we started working on it like it was our like main gig like main project and so that's when it went from like you know eight songs to ending ending <laughs> up being like 32 so <laughs> i love hearing that kind of thing when something starts out as this passion passion project and then mm -hmm. it can be turned into something a lot bigger it's always inspiring yeah. yeah it was uh it was great for me because it was the first time that i was like um making music for a game in that professional capacity um where like there was a publisher involved and you know everybody was working on this goal of getting it launched on you know major platforms it was really exciting so yeah yeah and I'm not as familiar with the process of game development, but with a publisher, when you when you have a publisher versus a, a team that publishes on their own, does that change how the flow works at all? Um, it certainly did for me in in the capacity of which like like just from my experience, um I think that, uh, well, I, I can only talk from like my experience with it, which is that when, uh, when Rose city got involved with garden story, we had a lot more structure to our work. I think if some, if there's a lot of people that are making their own hobby games and publishing themselves, you kind of have to create that structure and that, um, sort of like timeline and organization all that on your own which can be kind of tough but if you're working for a publisher or at least when i did there's people that are dedicated to doing that and so all of a sudden you you know everything is like much more organized there's like deadlines that you have to meet um you know <laughs> you know what you need to do kind of by when um i think that's kind of one of the key differences between between those two things and also you know, the opportunity of getting things put on platforms and um, things like that. And there's some other opportunities, I think, that can come out of working with publishers that maybe some people who self-publish don't. But from, from my experience, those were kind of like the key things that changed. Yeah, from my understanding, I guess it would probably benefit different people in different ways. And it's probably different depending on what you want out of your game 
Yeah, I don't think there's really one right answer. <laughs> like, I think it's totally dependent on the person and like what project you're working on, what your goals are for it. Like, it's completely like a case-by-case -case scenario. So, yeah. What are some games that have left the most impact on you? Um, well, the first game that made me want to get into video game music or just kind of like piqued my interest in it was Donkey Kong Country. Um, Great like, game. yeah, I, I'm like a super huge fan of those soundtracks. Um, and, uh, specifically the, the Dave Wise ones, I, the third one is also great. Um, but like, his music i remember like being like pretty young when those came out um and my older brother had a super nintendo that we all kind of shared and i would just like i would play those games and i would just leave the music on and like jump around my bedroom <laughs> to like uh bonus room blitz or whatever um and it just it just stuck with me so much that I found myself as a kid wanting to come back to it just to listen to the music. Uh, and then I think there was a certain point when I was like 10 or something where I, I was on my like family computer or whatever. And I was like, you know, like someone had to write this music. <laughs> <laughs> and so I like looked it up and I was like, Oh, like it's crazy that there's people that are actually like composing music for video games. And my, I feel like it would just opened up this whole kind of new world to me. Um, so that was kind of like the first thing, like the first foray for me into video game music. And then um, Fez was another mm. big one when I was uh, much older. Um, originally I was going to school and I wanted to do uh, film scoring was kind of I, I was assuming that was kind of going to be my main thing it was between wanting to do film scoring and doing like music production like studio work and stuff because at the time I still I still had that seed of like it'd be cool to make video game music but I didn't think it was actually like viable um, and then there was like this really early ish early ish wave of indie games coming out and Fez was one of them yeah um, and this was back in 2012 and I was still in college then uh, studying music pr production and stuff. Um, and I was like, wow, this, <laughs> this soundtrack is amazing. Like it, it completely opened my mind to like um, the things that people were doing in the current landscape then of, of uh, video game music and that indie games were a thing and that it was tangible for kind of like a, a person who wasn't hired at a triple a company to make a video game score um and yeah i was just a big fan of uh disaster pieces work on that soundtrack and it kind of inspired me to dig deeper into um what i could do to get myself involved with the indie game scene more so those those two games in terms of the music probably have had the biggest impact on like my career and and me wanting to do music for games yeah i i was also actually going through your spotify playlist and i saw that you also really like final fantasy Is yeah <laughs> and yeah absolutely i think it's really cool to see when someone has interests that can it's a wide range of interests that it's it's really interesting because when you have a wide range of interest, I feel like that comes across in your work a lot of the time. Yeah. Sure. And it creates a lot of interesting and new pieces of art that wouldn't have if you were interested in other things, you know? Yeah. I mean, I listen to a lot of non video game music on a daily basis um and i i also like uh other types of art too like i'm i'm very much into like visual art as well um and other things and i think having that kind of diversity in the things you're interested in and consuming like you said it definitely helps you kind of 
become a more well-rounded artist and can help you contribute maybe unique things to the the medium that you're working in rather than just being in like a echo chamber of listening to the one thing you're trying to make <laughs> so yeah yeah speaking of non-video game music are there any artists outside of that specifically that have been a good role model to you um like my favorite like non-video game music musicians yeah or um bands yeah uh i mean i grew up listening to the beatles a lot um same like they were like in on in my house a lot and i think for me that was there's an interesting like crossover a little bit in in a lot of the cool production things that the Beatles did in their music that bleeds over into when you're thinking about orchestrating things in a soundtrack kind of way and I think uh, a lot of that stuff um, like the 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 orchestration in like Penny Lane for example like really piqued my interest as a kid uh, and like hearing like the horns and like the flute and all of that stuff and I think that was definitely like an early example of me being like, Oh, what is this? Like, this is really cool. Like this band is using like traditional instruments and band instruments and things. Um, and so, yeah, I still listen to them a lot <laughs> to this day. Um, and then there's a lot of like other bands out there, um, that are kind of more modern that I, that I definitely listen to, um, a lot, a lot of like indie stuff. Um, I, Sundays? I, uh, yeah i love the sundays um yeah uh i <laughs> i discovered them when i was i was in a goodwill in seattle <laughs> and they were playing here's where the story ends on the loudspeaker and i shazammed it on my phone because <laughs> so i was like man this song is really good i don't think i've ever heard it before uh, but yeah stuff like that for sure they're they're a little bit older like 90s stuff mm. um but um yeah i i try to keep like uh just a pretty eclectic range of like artists that I listen to. <laughs> also, it's funny you mentioned Penny Lane because I think for me personally, that's probably my favorite Beatles song. Oh, cool. And <laughs> it's great. <laughs> a really interesting fact for any Earthbound fans, I think Earthbound actually samples Penny Lane in the soundtrack. That's interesting. You know, I, I've heard like a lot of things over the years about how much crazy sampling yeah, yeah. is in the soundtrack for that game. And I've, I've played maybe like a third of Earthbound. I've never beaten it, um, but that's really interesting. Like, I, I don't know if I've ever heard that specific example before. Yeah, there's this video on YouTube that you can look at later if you want. It basically goes over a ton of songs in the game and shows the, the original sample and then it pitches it down a little bit. And then it shows you the kind of the before and after. It's so cool. That is cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Speaking of sampling, when you make soundtracks, do you ever use any hardware? Um, not really. <laughs> I mean, hardware in the sense of like, I use a lot of like instruments that I play, like, um, like on floppy nights, there's a good handful of tracks where I'm playing guitar and bass on it. Um, but in terms of like using hardware synths and that stuff, not really. Uh, I've dabbled with a couple of like small things. Like I have this like pocket operator. Oh, I actually have one. Wait. Oh, cool. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a fun <laughs> little thing to like play around with. And I, I think I sampled some sounds from that that I might have ended up using for some sound effects on Floppy Nights. Um, but I don't have like a, you know, huge collection of hardware synths or anything like that. Like I just have a very simple setup of MIDI keyboard and guitar and bass and stuff. So, um, yeah, I find that you can get a lot of mileage with just software stuff. <laughs> Yeah, from my understanding, it's better to work minimalistic anyways, because if you have a lot of different types of equipment and your workspace gets a little overloaded mm. with stuff, it can make things complicated when you're making music. I think so. I I, 
I think like it really depends on the environment that you're working in. I think if you have like this, if you have like a really nice studio where you can organize a bunch of hardware synths and like know what all they all do and have an idea of when you want to use them, it would be cool to have those tools at my disposal. But um, I just, I like ergonomically uh, like in like the space I have and all of that, I just don't really uh, have the, the need for a bunch of hardware stuff right now uh in the future i'd love to get more into that stuff though like even if i were to just use like um like physical compressors and like get some more preamps or even some like uh i see i've seen some people that use like um uh like the old uh like it's like not it's kind of like sound font stuff. I can't sound canvas, like the, Oh, the Roland sound canvas, yeah. like people are using those old consoles and stuff to, to, to make music. And I think having like a physical one of those would be pretty fun to mess around with, but yeah, it's kind I don't of know like if... wishlist stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's also financially, <laughs> they can get crazy expensive. yeah, for sure. I don't know if you've ever looked at a picture of any Nintendo composers like Koji Kondo. And you can see his studio with all the old hardware samplers. And Mm -hmm. now those I think samplers are probably <laughs> oh my god yeah insane. yeah I think it would be fun if I you know if you ever had the means to afford that stuff and have the room for it and all of that um but uh yeah they have so much of that stuff as software since now so it's like you can I mean that's like we were talking about the the wave station and in the m1 earlier like you can Did they have software and versions of those now? Yeah, So, you and know, they're way it cheaper. is, yeah, for sure. Is the mixing process for chiptune music different from other genres of video game music? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, especially if you're talking about, um, like tracker chiptune, uh, like, from when I've worked on stuff, like it's more of a matter of balancing the volume between the different instruments and making sure that the clarity of the different parts that you're writing are coming through in the way that you want to. Um, there's not as, as much, uh, there's not as many extra elements to mixing uh, like chiptune in a tracker as there are is like a, if you're writing like a mock-up orchestral, video game thing in like logic where you have to think about all of these other you know reverb and all of this other stuff and so it's definitely different um and it can be different in a good way because i think for me when i'm making chiptune stuff uh even if it is in a daw but especially if it's in a tracker you're it really just eliminates a lot of the distractions and makes you focus on the part writing and the melody and the harmony and the rhythm and everything like that So, yeah. And when you work with chiptune music, do you have to focus more on the fre frequency range so that you don't have any clashing sounds? Um, I don't know if I really think about it too consciously because I think, uh, like if we're specifically talking about like tracker based chiptune music, like I tend to think very much in a like linear way in terms of like this is the bass part this is kind of like the lead melody this is the harmony part um and, and when you're thinking that way it's very i find it at least for myself it's very hard to get in a place where you find that you have too many clashing things because things kind of you know they they disperse in a natural way to where there aren't too many conflicting frequencies But if you're talking about like sound font music, which can sometimes be considered chiptune, I don't know, these days, like people really like to get nitty gritty over like naming convention stuff and labeling and all of that. But um, then I can see it becoming more of a problem. But if you just have like four tracks and like four voices to work with, I think it would be kind of a challenge to get to a place where you're really 
making all of those voices clash with each other in an unpleasant way. <laughs> so. Yeah. Can I think for a second? Oh yeah, sure. So when you work with sound fonts, then, since you do have more to worry about, how do you make sure that you don't have any sounds that are too... Let's say you have two similar sounds in a mix, and you want to make sure that you can hear each one individually. How do you make sure that that comes across in the song? Um, I'm trying to like place my mentality back. I haven't used sound fonts in quite a while. Um, but I think there are a lot of different things you can do to kind of spread them out or make them give them their own space. Um, I can maybe think of a specific example from like Garden Story. There's um there's the the track Pillow Leaf, which is the the song that plays when you go inside of like your home in the game. And there's this flute part that was uh in the same kind of like uh octave range as a lot of like the chord stuff going on in the background of the track. And I found when I just played it kind of over it and didn't do anything to it, it like clashed too much with like the hmm. the other stuff going on. But I found that there was a neat trick I tried where um, each note of the flute I panned hard panned to the different oh. uh st you know stereo sides of uh hard left hard right. So yeah. it's like do 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 do, and it's like <laughs> left right left right. Um, and when I did that. Um, it like kind of pulled, uh, sorry, thing. it kind of pulled the, um, the flute element a little bit outside of the arrangement to where it stuck out more and it had its own space where I had the other stuff like center panned. And so I think there's different things you can do like that to kind of just like neat mixing tricks that you can do with the convenience of like modern DAWs to kind of make things, um, a little more distinct like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, it's interesting you say that about panning, because when I listened to that song, I never noticed that it was panned like that. And yeah, <laughs> it was just, a it was a fun idea, um, that I think served as like, just a fun thing, but also like fixed the problem I was having. Um, so I'm pretty happy with how that turned out, so. How do you, when you write your songs and you have a certain feeling in mind for them, how do you make sure that how your feeling comes across in the song? Do you use music theory at all? or mm, Like if there's a certain, like if I'm, if I'm working on like a, like a level or something that needs a certain tone. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm I don't know as much about music theory as like um you know, music school people probably know. Um uh cuz like I I didn't have like a full extensive like music education. I went I had like a certificate program uh at like a community college, so I didn't really study music theory extensively. Um and so I, but I have a pretty, pretty okay understanding of it. Um, I'll definitely like pull out some different modes if I'm trying to achieve certain feelings. Um, and that's like a really helpful for me, like, like doing different modes. Like if I want something to sound kind of like a little majestical or something, maybe try like Lydian or something um something that is like happy but kind of has like a different color to it like mixolydian is great um i definitely have that stuff in my toolbox like to kind of like pull from um and experiment with when i'm trying to achieve like a certain sound um but i don't 100 percent rely on it all the time 
a lot of the time I'll just like noodle around, like fart around on my MIDI keyboard and kind of improvise until I'm kind of getting, you know, what I'm looking for. Um, but I think it's good to know some basic level of theory um, to to kind of lean on in times that you really need it. So. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think it's good to have a balance with music theory and just noodling. I found Yeah. that some of my favorite songs that I've made are actually just me improvising on the piano. And it's good to know if if you think you can't really come up with anything at the moment, but you want to create something. It's kind of a good tool to know. Yeah. And, and in, improvising is like really, really key. Like, I think the better you get at kind of like knowing your way around an instrument, um, the easier it becomes to just improvise a lot of different ideas and just like <laughs> record all of them. And then you can kind of come back to it later and edit it down to the things that you like. Um, so I spent a long time like trying to get my keyboard, like piano chops up um, just so I was able to like improv stuff on my MIDI keyboard uh, just to get some ideas laid down because before that I mainly focused on guitar and it's a lot harder to do that and trans translate and transcribe or whatever all of that uh, transpose maybe is what I'm looking for into uh, like MIDI data. Like it's very hard to convert guitar ideas into MIDI data, data unless you have like one of those crazy like MIDI guitars that are out there <laughs> that just like does it immediately. Um, but yeah, um, but there are other things that like, like different scales and stuff like um, there's, you know, times when I'll like, I'll, I'll feel like, oh, like this is kind of supposed to feel a little like, you know, emotionally ambiguous maybe try like a whole tone scale, some like impressionistic kind of thing. Um, there are a lot of cool different things uh, that I think are worth knowing so you can try them. Because if, you, if you're just kind of like reaching in the dark and trying to maybe achieve those sounds without that prior knowledge of what they really are, it can be hard to kind of get to that place. Um Versus if you already know that, like, uh, that's what a diminished chord sounds like, that's what a whole tone scale sounds like, that's what that mode, you know, Dorian or whatever, like, it it becomes easier to get that sound if you know what it is. You can just be like, all right, that's what's needed here. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the things about being a musician or artist, too, is that even if you have a lot of good ideas in here, in your head, it's really hard to actually get that out there if you don't know the right words and the right, not even the right words, but just if you don't know how to get it out there, because there's always a way to learn how to do that. I think the hard part is just having the right questions, the right terminology, all this stuff. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Everything is like kind of just to make it as easy of a transition from in your brain <laughs> to out into the world. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I'm sure it differs between every song, but how loud do you often mix your bass compared to the drums? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um Yeah, it that really varies, like soundtrack to soundtrack, song to song. I don't really have a standard that I go to. It's just what feels right for whatever track I'm working on. Um and uh it, it depends on like what kind of genre I'm like trying to emulate or like inspired by. Um, there are a lot of different factors. Um, I definitely don't have like a go-to like this is you know, where the drums need to sit in relation to the bass. It's just all based on feel for what is right for whatever thing I'm working on at the time. So. I I was going to make a bad joke, but I'm going to hold it back for a second. Okay. But, <laughs> well, now I feel like I have to say it because you said based on something mm. and I thought base. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't have said it. E A S S apostrophe D. <laughs> this that's why this is not a comedy podcast. <laughs>
<laughs> but are there any tricks that you use to make the bass or, or the drums more punchier in the mix? Um, I'm, there are a couple things you can do. There's, there's been some times when I've like worked with like side chain compression, um, which to kind of illustrate that for people that don't know, it's basically a way of controlling, um, the compression on certain instruments by routing a signal from a different instrument. And so most commonly it's used like, you'll sidechain like a kick to an instrument and when like the kick drum hits it like kind of like squashes everything else down so that kick drum like really punches through and i know there's been a couple times where i've uh used that it can it can be tricky though because i when you're doing stuff like that uh it can get really intense really quickly and for a lot of soundtracks maybe you don't want that intensity um maybe you just kind of want the kick drum to be sitting as like kind of an element like all the other stuff um but i mean aside from that um something that i've been really conscious more more conscious of uh during kind of more recent uh soundtrack work is like eqing and like really kind of making sure that each thing has its own spirit which is like kind of music production kind of 101 or like mixing 101 um but back when i was making like the sound font stuff i wasn't really thinking about eq um and i think there's like a natural kind of way that those sounds sit with each other anyway um to where like you can put a lot of those so like sounds together in a track and not touch an equalizer and it'll probably sound pretty good and that's exactly what i did i don't think i think there's barely any eq on my old sound font stuff outside of maybe some mastering stuff but the more that i kind of like have explored with different sounds and and incorporated guitar into my work and stuff and other instruments and and stuff like that over the years the more i found that it's like really kind of important to make sure that um things are kind of resting within their own bandwidth and or like ducking where other instruments are having a boost and things like that to try to get them to stick out in the mix a little bit more so Do you have any advice to train your ear better as a composer and be able to recognize that stuff more? Um, like production techniques, like mixing techniques. Yeah, just mixing techniques in terms of volume and I guess just when you're listening to other music and you're trying to understand what's going on in those mixes and seeing how to train your ear to understand that more. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I think it just comes from like being familiar with the process and what those tools are. And like the more that you experiment with it on your own and in your own process you'll start to hear it and recognize it in other things and then once you get to that point i think it becomes easier to identify when people are doing like interesting things with those tools and be like oh i've never tried that before you know um but I, yeah i don't i don't know because like it's really easy to just listen to music and not Yeah. be conscious of a lot of, i still do it like i'm not when i listen to a lot of like the bands that i like or even a lot of soundtracks like i'm not necessarily thinking about like you know how's the compression sounding on this because <laughs> yeah. if it's done well you might not even think about it at all you know but um yeah it's a that's an interesting question um it's not something that i that that i really think about too much unless i'm actively seeking out like okay let me listen to this this soundtrack I really like and really kind of deliberately listen to how it's mixed or how the compression or reverb is in integrated into the, the overall picture. And can I emulate that with my own tools? Um, yeah. I don't know. I think instead of maybe thinking about it when you listen, then I guess, I guess a way to get better at that would be to maybe remake stuff instead and actually put it into practice. Yeah. I I mean, like, I always think that's a good idea for 
for people that want to get better at a certain craft, the more you can like remake or like learn the process of like people that are making art that you like, the more that's going to serve you. Um, like when I was learning guitar, uh, when I was really young, like I, you know, like I do the thing where like most people learning guitar doers, you just learn as many songs as possible. And I think in for video game music like um you know there's a lot of times where uh when i was making stuff trying to get into doing uh like midi music where i would just like try to make songs in different composer styles or try to get like a certain sound and it and it allows you to kind of dive pretty deep into not only like the literal sounds you need like in the production things that you need to achieve those sounds but also like the mentality mm. uh behind like you know the different style of composing and things like that and, and i think there's a huge uh like database of resources out there on the internet um I, i've definitely like gone down the rabbit hole of even just like downloading midi files <laughs> of like uh like people have really spent a lot of time like transcribing midi data of like old classic <laughs> video game soundtracks and sometimes uh, like i spent a lot of time just downloading a lot of those and just looking at the notes and like kind of peeling back like what's really going on here um and i think that can be really helpful for people that want to get better at that kind of thing so i definitely recommend doing that for sure yeah and I, I recently remade one of your songs, actually, and I mean, you know, but for listeners yeah. who don't know, and yeah, I learned a lot just from doing that. I, I also, I tried to, after I remade that song, I I started working on my own song that was inspired by your style. And yeah, that's awesome. I learned a lot just, just from remaking that one song and, and then going and making another. I le learned a lot through doing that and... Yeah, definitely recommend remaking stuff. Cool. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that. That's cool. <laughs> so, can I think for a second? Sorry. Yeah. When you're composing, do you have different stages? Um, I think it again like this is kind of my answer to some of the other questions but it definitely depends um like project to project um like there's different steps of the process that come earlier for certain projects that i'm working for yeah uh and some steps of the process that come way later like um <clears throat> you know sometimes i'll be working on like a game and like the there'll be a build of the game that I can play that's like fully playable and all of that. And I can like kind of get in and and get a feel for like what the game feels like before I even start writing anything and take a lot of notes to how I want it to feel. Um yeah, before I even start composing. And then there are times where like I'll have like a very limited amount of things to go off of like a picture <laughs> of a level or it's like concept art or something. And I'll just have to like improvise a bunch of stuff and until I kind of get to where I think I might be going. Um, so there's not, there's not kind of like one set in stone way. Um, it, it definitely depends on like what resources I have available while I'm working and, um, and kind of just to like, if I want to experiment with different things, like, I think that that process of improvising things before you have a lot of information can be fun and actually be useful sometimes. Um, because then maybe later on down the line in the development period or whatever, you can go back to something that you kind of just noodled around on and be like, wait, this thing actually works for this new level that we're working on or whatever. So it's, it is always different. Um, in terms of like when I actually start writing, um, I tend to think about harmony a lot. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff that 
um, I, a lot of the melody comes from the choices that I make in the harmony. Like I kind of, I can, I kind of tend to gravitate towards playing around with different chord progressions kind of first. Um, and then based off like kind of what notes are making up the chords that I'm playing around with and kind of like maybe like what mode I'm in or whatever, I'll develop a melody based off of that. Um, I, and, and just kind of thinking about everything kind of in the context of like chords and harmony and stuff like that. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. I I like hearing about other people's process when they make stuff because sometimes I feel like my my own process is a little crazy and it's nice Yeah. <laughs> nice to hear other other people's ways of doing things so I can learn from it. But what's what's your process kind of look like to be honest, it's a lot of just trial and error. yeah <laughs> that's mine. mm -hmm. But I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I think I need to work on my own process more and fine tune some things. it's always like a work in progress for everyone. <laughs> and I don't think there is ever like one right way to kind of do it, even just for one person. Like you're probably like everyone jumps around from different processes all the time for different projects. Um, but yeah, at trial and error is definitely like a big part of any composing <laughs> thing for me too. And I think the more you get comfortable with working on things, the more you get comfortable with just kind of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. Uh, because I think like it can be, it, it can be really easy to get like psyched out um, by, by uh, like, if you, if you're working on a project, that's really important to you. Um, not allowing the space to experiment and be open and to throw everything at the wall. Like maybe it, it can get easier to be kind of like, very methodical about everything and worry about being perfect about everything. But I find that the more you can just kind of like play around and seeing what works, I think that ultimately serves the end result um, in a better way. So. Yeah, I agree. When you worked on Dancing Duelist, which for listeners who don't know is, it's kind of this, I haven't played it myself, but I saw a little bit of gameplay of it. And from my understanding, it's kind of a card game, right? Yeah, so it's like um it's a dancing cart like deck building based like dance off combat type game. And so like you choose the different cards that you want in in your deck and stuff. Um it was made by the same team that made Slay the Spire. So a lot of like the there's a lot of like uh mechanical crossover in terms of like the thinking about deck building and things like that. So That's mega crit, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, my, my question was, that was a game that took three weeks to make, and I was wondering if having that limited amount of time forced you to get yourself to actually go out and make things compared to if you had a much longer deadline, then maybe you might spend a little less time and a lot more downtime on it compared
I do think what you're saying about like having more time to work on something, it can get into that place where maybe, you know, you, you kind of, uh, become your own worst enemy in, in, uh, overthinking things maybe too much or spending too much time developing the ideas rather than finishing them. Um, but for that project specifically, it was pretty easy for me to come up with the things that I needed to, because the, just the, the characters in the game and in the background of the game, it was, it had a very clear layout and like roadmap for what it needed, especially since the game is based off like different dancing characters and different genres of music like it, the roadmap was really clear and so I was able to just kind of knock those out pretty quickly without thinking about it too much <laughs> yeah I, or like but, overthinking it rather but by the way I love when you do dance songs or soundtracks like that because they're always so funky and good <laughs> thanks yeah uh I'm definitely like uh, looking to explore different things at this current point because uh, I dancing duelists was definitely like that 100% and then there was a lot of like really high energy dancey stuff on floppy nights too it was really fun to like kind of like show that creative side and like explore that those kind of styles and and flex that creative muscle a little bit um uh, but uh, I'm definitely like kind of wanting to work in more like atmospheric music again because uh, I just like to keep like a a nice amount of diversity in what I'm working on and it felt like I was doing a lot of that for a while um, which is cool but I'm kind of like excited to work on other things <laughs> so. it's it's funny you say that you're wanting to work on more atmospheric stuff because I'm someone who makes a lot of atmospheric music and more recently I've been trying to make more upbeat music yeah. and dance inspiring stuff. So I think that that's a funny coincidence. Yeah, no, I think it's just like when you're working in a certain style for so long, like um, you kind of get to a point of where you are just wanting to kind of stretch your mind into other places a little yeah. bit and that's okay. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So, yeah. Can I think for a second? Sure. How are you doing so far, by the way? I'm great. This conversation is really fun. <laughs> I'm glad. Are you a Haruki Murakami fan? I don't. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Um, I actually just finished reading uh one of his memoirs i don't know if he has multiple but he has he wrote one called like what i talk about when i talk about running and i read that on a plane um a little bit ago like two months ago or something like that um and uh yeah it was interesting because like that's the only piece of non-fiction of his that i've read but i've read a good amount of his his other stuff like uh Norwegian Wood and Kafka on the Shore and um there's a few other ones that I've read um but yeah um I yeah I I love his work it's great <laughs> yeah I the reason why I ask actually maybe I won't say because okay. I, I want to kind of be like Nardware you know but <laughs> sure but yeah I've I've read one of his books before i think it's i forget the title of it but it's about this middle-aged guy and i think he's from what i remember he's quitting smoking and he also there's a lot it's it's weird with oh is it books. is it um wind up bird chronicle yeah 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 i'm like halfway through that book me too. Yeah. It's a it's a chunky one. <laughs> yeah. It's a, what, it's a long one. <laughs> I was gonna try to explain it, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on. As is with most of his books. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of his of the book so far? Um of Wind Up Bird? Yeah. Um I s well, I had to put it down a little I I haven't picked it up in about a year. 
So I, I'm kind of trying to remember <laughs> uh, a bit about, I, I mean, I recognized it from like the plot points you were bringing up. Um, it's interesting. I, I think a lot of his work and like this appears in that book too, is just like, it. I like how he explores just like different surrealist kind of elements yeah. mixed into very like it's it's interesting like a lot of his books have this like contrast of like mundane reality yeah, yeah. mixed with like these like surrealist kind of like ideas and they come together in a really interesting way and and i think based off uh the amount that i read of that book like i was enjoying that one too i just haven't gotten around to finishing it so yeah also when i said earlier that i was trying to be like nardware i was joking <laughs> oh that's okay <laughs> but I think actually the reason I think it's important to not try to be like someone else, especially in a space like this, when I think mm -hmm. it's really valuable to be yourself. And I think it's okay to have role models and that's a great thing. But for me personally, at least when it comes to this, I think it's better to try to be more like yourself. For sure. Are you like a big fan of Nardwar's stuff? Yeah. Yeah. He's he's great. I watch a lot of his interviews with musicians and stuff. Um, yeah, I love I love also when he he tries to get other people on. You can see clips of him tried when he goes to shows and stuff, and he tries to go to the musicians, and you can tell if they're a mean person or not based on how they treat him. Yeah, that's I feel like there's a phrase for that that people have coined over the years. Like it's like the Nardwar test or something like that, where like the way that you treat him is a reflection of your personality <laughs> and your morals. And, and your, yeah, <laughs> so that's funny because like, um, yeah, I think people are kind of like really put off by how in depth he gets and and <laughs> just like how uh, how much knowledge he uh, accumulates of people. <laughs> um, but I also think it's just really fun. I really love it when he like gives presents to people and it's like something they mentioned like 15 years ago. And he's like, I heard you wanted this thing from this interview you did in like 2005 or something. <laughs> like, whoa, holy shit. Like I wasn't even expecting this. But... And they always ask how, how, that, how the heck he knows. And yeah, <laughs> he's basically like the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. Is there anything like, in particular that you want to talk about? Oh, well, I was just going to like uh, just comment on your last thing about like trying to like find your own voice and not like get too caught up in sounding like people that you, your role models and all that. Like, yeah, it can be kind of difficult. And I think there's a natural like curve to when you're learning something it's okay to like mimic people that you like that's how anyone gets good at what they're doing i think um and i think at the end of the day like your own voice is your own perspective based off an accumulation of all the things you like um and so i think it just gets easier the more you do something uh to to be comfortable with your own voice and your own style it just comes with with uh doing the thing for a, a while and then you and you start realize start noticing like little things that you like and little habits you're like oh i i like doing that thing quite a lot maybe that's part of my whole shtick or whatever <laughs> so. yeah i mean it's like that with music and even philosophy i found that a lot of the times when i'm learning from someone that I and again I don't I try not to look up to people just because I think we're all human and I think no one's perfect but there are people that I do like and want to be more like to some degree mm -hmm. so when I'm learning from those types of people I think throughout my day-to-day -day, I might say things that sound like them and then mm. after a while I learn how to develop my own way of saying that because i do agree with what they're saying but i'm trying to figure out how to express that myself yeah 
like putting your own kind of like perspective and everything into it yeah i think what you're talking about is like the difference between like idolizing people and admiring them Hmm. like maybe there's like definitely an unhealthy way to idolize people and think that they're like you know they have this like unachievable kind of like aura or status or whatever (laughs) versus like admiring the work that someone's done is like totally cool and like you can admire people and want to be more like them or kind of absorb their worth that work work ethic yeah um or you know anything like that um and i think that's totally all like healthy and valid and cool so cool yeah that that helps a lot too because i don't have a lot of the right words or i guess there isn't a right words to say so yeah cool well i guess that's gonna sum it up for today's interview unless there's anything else that you want to talk about Oh no! I mean, this was fun. Yeah. <laughs> awesome! Thanks again, by the way, for joining me today. I had a lot of fun, and I'm a big fan of your music. So it's always, it's always so fun to me when I can reach out to someone that I'm a fan of, and then they respond back saying that they want to be on, and it makes me really grateful because it's always fun. Cool. Yeah. I was excited to do this too. So yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So that's it. Thank you everyone for listening. I upload every Friday and if you have any feedback for me, let me know in the comments below and yeah, you can listen on Spotify, YouTube, Apple podcast, and that's about it. See you next Friday. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. (laughs) You guys are awesome. And girls.